0: Ladies and gentlemen Can I please have your attention Daniel (laughs)
1: Greetings dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg Host of the Remnant Podcast Brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media Okay, so I'm actually recording this after I've had the conversation because we had some technical issues that were uh, very complicated and very annoying. And um, if if I had sort of an intern, I could slap or beat to get my frustrations out. Uh, I would have by now. And that's one of the reasons to hope this pandemic ends soon. Uh, regardless, uh, very excited that we have uh, my friend, former colleague at National Review, uh, Charlie Cook on. Um, he's not the 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 election analyst charlie cook he's the roundhead brit uh, um, atheist conservatarian guy um, who lives in florida and i i will just let you know up front i forgot to talk to him about the guy who saved the puppy um from the alligator um which is all over social media if you haven't seen it um i i just want to own up to that before the conversation starts as a way of an apology and I don't want people like listening to it, hoping that we'll get to that. Um, but there it is. And, uh, it's a kind of a meandering thing. We originally had him on to talk about Thanksgiving. He didn't take the bait at first, eventually got him to talk about Thanksgiving. We got into some other conversations about the recount goes all over the place, but stick around to the end because I think it gets pretty good. And, um, other than that, uh, let's get started. All right, Charlie, it's great to have you here. Um, uh, people don't need to know much backstory, but we're 22 minutes into trying to get this thing started because of technical issues. So everyone's missed the, just the gold of jocularity (laughs) that we had in our witty badinage back and forth. I mean, I can't remember hearing so many on point Oscar Wilde references, but anyway, that's lost to history. Great to have you back on The Remnant, Charlie.
0: Thank you very much. Nice to be here.
1: Um, yeah, you were much wittier in the, in the First round uh, anyway,
0: right, i disappointed you this early in the podcast. <laughs>
1: um, i I think we're just going to continue this is a continuation of previous disappointments rather than starting a fresh disappointment, but um, regardless, how you been?
0: I've been fine I've yeah? been fine. It's been a strange three weeks, but that's actually something that could be said at any point during the last year or five years yeah, I mean I'd be very curious you'd have to go back
1: and look what was the longest stretch of passing normalcy in the last four plus years. And I don't think it made it three weeks. There's just no way. Um, so, uh, you know, just for level setting purposes for the, for the tiny, tiny fraction of the public that doesn't listen to you on those other podcasts, uh, what is your, uh, Uh, Your sort of big picture takeaway from the election and all that?
0: Well, the election itself surprised me, not because I didn't think that Trump would come close or even win. I did. In fact, I got the election broadly right, although I I didn't see Biden winning Georgia. Mm -hmm. That was the state that I missed. But because I had absolutely no idea that the House would be as close as it was, and I was slightly surprised by the Senate. I wasn't just surprised as some others. By the end, I thought Joni Ernst was going to win, and I thought Susan Collins was going to win as well. Uh, but I didn't expect the Republicans to do as well as they did across the board. Mm-hmm. What has surprised me is the scale of the craziness in the aftermath of the election. I knew that Trump had it in him. I didn't expect it to be quite so pronounced on quite so little evidence. Now, I should say, I don't particularly want to hear wailing about this from progressives who have spent the last four years doing the same thing. But it is much, much worse coming from the President of the United States. And uh, insofar as I was unsure as to what I thought the best outcome of the election would be and wrote as much, Trump's behavior in the succeeding days has made it clear that it is good that he lost. Yes.
1: Okay. I think that's fair. Um, I got to say, I'm, I'm with you on the, the merits of the, I don't want to hear from the people who talked about, who undermined the legitimacy of the last election thing. Um, And I know this doesn't speak to you because you're not there, but there are a lot of sort of anti, anti anti-Trumper types who use that argument without doing what you did which is dropping the other shoe and saying but what Trump is doing is terrible. They stop with I don't want to hear it from people who, you know, I, I was on with Molly Hemingway on special report on Friday night and she does this we don't need to hear from people who uh undermine the legitimacy of the election when Donald Trump was election in 2016 complaining about what Trump is doing now. Full stop. And no criticism of the president. And I'm fine with criticizing those people, but um, what the president's doing is bad. <laughs> of course, <laughs> I mean, it's legitimately I, I, a bad thing.
0: I think it's important to note purely because our politics is often channeled into one side is good and the other is bad. Now you mentioned other podcasts. I have spent two, three weeks since the election on both the podcasts I appear on at national review, the editors and mad dogs describing the president's behavior as abhorrent as unprecedented, uh, and pushing back against the idea that there is any evidence whatsoever, right. which there is not. Uh, one reason that I know that there is no case here is that the people I would expect to be all over this, if there were a case, are not. Uh, Perhaps even more vitriolic than me in his denunciations of the president's case has been Andy McCarthy. No, I agree. If if this election were being stolen, Andy McCarthy would not be denouncing the president and his lawyers. Not lawyers for doing their job. It's important lawyers do their job, and that we have legal processes for this. But for some of the cases they've come up with, the reason that I mention the other side is because I think that President Trump, and I remember writing this four years ago and arguing along much the same lines, does not exist in a vacuum, but exists on a continuum. Now, I think that President Trump is much worse in many ways than the other people on that continuum. And I think his behavior is much worse in many ways than some of the other behavior on that continuum. But... I do not want to hear about our sacred democracy and the importance of being a good loser from the people who pumped up Stacey Abrams in Georgia, from the people who nodded along here in Florida when Andrew Gillum uh, rescinded his uh, acknowledgement that he had lost and started talking about Jim Crow, and from people who shared... Rachel Maddow monologues, and Harry Reid insinuations that suggested quite literally that the election had been stolen and that the votes had been changed. And I I, I mention that not to excuse President Trump. There's no excuse whatsoever. But just to say that one of the reasons that it is so bad that Donald Trump is doing what he is doing is that he is sowing distrust in our institutions and making more and more Americans unsure as to whether the systems under which they live are fair, which they are. Uh, And you know what else did that? Uh, Telling people that the Russians changed the vote totals, uh, that the president was a stooge, sounding like the John Birch Society every time he was mentioned, uh, and complaining that there was no such thing as a fair election in the United States uh, as Stacey Abrams did. And I, I just think it's worth bearing in mind, even as we acknowledge that what Trump is doing is is unprecedented uh and apparent
1: yeah no that i think that's entirely fair and i've been saying for years about andy who i who i love who or whom um i love dearly that one of his great services other than being great at explaining law stuff is that he's such a prosecutor and such an irishman (laughs) that if, if 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 there's truth to something, he will push it as aggressively as anybody out there, but he will not get beyond where the truth is. And, and so like on a lot of these things, you know, Southern California is embracing Sharia law and all of these kinds of things. If there's truth to it, you know, Andy will find it and, 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 and pound it. But if it's not true, you know, he'll say so. And so he's incredibly useful sort of as a canary in the coal mine in that. There are a lot of things he would like to be true, but he doesn't let that overpower his reasoning or his honesty. And he very much it, would like Trump to win. He very much would like, if there's proof of this stuff, to defend Trump on the on the merits, but he's just not going to cross a line and do what, uh, sadly, his former boss, Rudy Giuliani, is doing on a daily basis. So look, I mean, we're going to talk about Thanksgiving and why you should be grateful for America and all that. That's why I wanted to have you on, because you know when it comes to gratitude for America, you got to... Uh, you got to get immigrants to do jobs. Americans won't do. But, um, but before we get to that, I do have a question. You know, you mentioned the John Birch society all my life, not all my life, all my, basically my politically aware life, um, which, you know, I spent 21 years at national review. So the Birch society stuff, the, and the, the, all that looms large in my historical memory. Um, I very rarely ran into any actual fever swampy conspiracy people. You'd read them, you'd hear, you read about them. Um, but pretty much, you know, if they showed, if they popped up as an intern or as a young staffer at NR, they got quietly showed the door and part of NR's history was always to sort of, um, police that stuff, which I think it's doing a very good job of doing right now in the current, you know, crisis. But, um, it does seem to me that like there is something, there's some DNA that has been activated here when you have the stuff that Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and a lot of people at Fox and forget Newsmax and OAN buying into utterly implausible conspiracy theory stuff that I don't think Rudy Giuliani would have bought into 20 years ago. I mean, there would seem to be some people actually kind of losing their minds. Does it feel that way to you? Does it bother you that a lot of people, I mean, like, what does this say about the judgment of some of these people, like Victoria Tunsing, who keeps misstating what the law is in various places, or Rudy Giuliani, who just you know, keeps saying things like, all of our ballots are counted overseas. Um, what does it say about them that they can say this now, and, and were they crazy then, and we just didn't notice, or are they not crazy now? How do you calculate all that stuff?
0: I think a small part of it is that far more people in elite positions are crazy than we knew before social media. I think the difference here, though, is how deep this has sunk into elite circles, or at least circles that are around elite institutions now, for whatever reason. I should say off the bat, I am less surprised by and less alarmed by the prevalence of conspiracy theories in American life than many people. I'm not especially bothered by that trait in this country. I think it is part and parcel of who Americans are. Extreme liberty, the First Amendment, open spaces will lend themselves inevitably to sects and eventually to conspiracies. And they have been with us for a long time. The... 1960s saw them primarily bubbling up on the left. And then in the 70s and 80s, they moved a little more to the right. In the 1990s, there were a lot of people who believed in New World Order conspiracy theories and black helicopters. Uh, President Clinton, I think, pushed it too far, but wasn't entirely wrong when he linked some of the ways in which conservatives were talking to the Oklahoma City bombing. 9-11 9-11 spawned a whole bunch of them. So did the Iraq War. Americans do this. What I think is alarming in this case is that the president, who is in a position of power, either believes them or indulges them himself. And in so doing, he lowers the cost and he removes a source of pushback. It's not a great problem if somebody believes something that isn't true uh, but if the courts instead of being adversarial say sure <laughs> if public figures instead of telling the truth either stay silent or indulge the untruth you have a different scenario and and again you you know you, I'm, I'm sure this will sound like both sidesism too but a lot of this uh, has happened over the last four years on the left as well. And the number of unsourced stories that went around the internet and are now believed by Americans on the political left. Absolutely remarkable. Jonathan Chait wrote what I consider to be a professional suicide note in New York magazine, proposing that it's possible that Donald Trump has been a Russian asset since 1987. Now, he has an editor, And his editor is playing the same role in that dynamic as the president is with, say, QAnon or some of this election-stealing nonsense. But once again, it is so, so, so much worse when the president does it. And that's why Trump's behavior here uh, has been, I think, uniquely pernicious, because either Sidney Powell and co. came into his office, presented this theory, and he thought, well, that sounds credible. There's no way I could have lost, so this must be true. Or, they came into his office and presented this theory, and he thought, why not give it a shot? And I'm afraid I just can't imagine George H.W. Bush (laughs) in 1992 saying... Well, all's fair in politics. Let's give that a shot. Um, so either Trump here is uh, extremely naive, or he is um, uh, irresponsible. And uh, to that extent, the John Birch Society is inside the White House.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I, I again, I mean, I mean, I agree with all of that to a certain extent, or mostly or maybe entirely, but I, I've kind of priced that in about Trump, you know, I mean, I I can only bang my cowbell so much about Trump, the man at this point. What I I find just vastly more disturbing though, is the, the contagiousness of it. I mean, I, I don't know about you maybe, but like, I know, I know people who, you know, a lot of them are sort of longtime readers or email friends or, you know, friends of mine who's like, tell me how their parents are going weird and stuff, who watched the, you know, the hair dye melting press conference and listened to this theory about, you know, Dominion, Hammer and Strike, Hugo Chavez, all this stuff. Um, and they're like, oh, yeah, sounds really plausible. I mean, that, that, that looks like they've got it. and people were like reading gateway pundit as if it's a serious news source and all these kinds of things. And the fact that you have people like, I mean, I don't, I don't know much about Sidney Powell. I, you know, people, it it happened overnight that I'm supposed to consider her a dashboard saint of American life or something. And that we're just supposed to, Mm -hmm. you know, defer to her, but like Rudy Giuliani, you know, I grew up around Rudy Giuliani and the fact that he can say things over and over and over again that are palpably untrue is is deeply. It's more. It's much more disturbing to me in many ways than Donald Trump because I'm used to that from Donald Trump. I'm yes. not used to that from all these people in the news business who um, take, even if they're on the opinion side, who take this stuff seriously. Who who are transmission belts for just bullshit. On Twitter and turn it into like serious, you know, I'm just asking questions kind of thing. There does seem to be a it, it's it seems to have seeped into the floorboards of a big chunk of the American right. Not at National Review, you know, not a you know at AI, not at a bunch of places, but at way too many places than I would have expected. I and mean, it's, well, it's go ahead. That's why
0: I blame Trump, Jonah. In that, I think it is entirely possible that we have learned that Rudy Giuliani is crazier than we thought he was. But we've also learned that about, say, Lawrence Tribe over the last four years. Where I blame Trump is that ultimately Giuliani and Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis and the rest of them are lawyers and they have a client. Now, I am a defense lawyer guy. One of the arguments that I have over and over with the more Prosecutor friendly types at national reviews whether we should admire the people within the system who go into a courtroom and defend the worst people in the world, people they know are guilty, make the best case they can for them, and then try to get them off the hook. And my answer is we should admire them. They're playing a vital role in the system, and they're making sure that next time the guy who is innocent, and perhaps they know to be innocent, has a shot. Now, I have friends and colleagues who say, I don't want to take away the defense lawyer's job. I don't want him drummed out of polite society. But I couldn't do it, and I don't admire him. The guy who goes in and he shreds the government's case against a child rapist. I'm not saying alleged, because I'm assuming in this hypothetical that the guy did it, Mm -hmm. which happens. (laughs) Um, I think that person is playing a really, really important role. I don't think you can have a society without him. As such, I am prepared to give lawyers a little bit of latitude when they're making um, cases on behalf of, their clients, and I've been disturbed by this attempt to go after Trump's lawyers and shame them. Uh, it's not really been against Sidney Powell and Co. It's been against, you know, Jones Day. But I, I, I don't want to see that. Um, but ultimately, the person you have to dislike in the case where the guy everyone knows is guilty gets off because the government couldn't make its case and his lawyer was good is is the guy who got off but did it. And the the problem here at root is the president because he is signing off on all of these theories. They're not freelancing it. I mean, at the very least, he said, go and do whatever you need to do. At worst, they sat together around a table and came up with the strategy. Now, this doesn't let Rudy Giuliani off the hook or mean you can't judge the guy, it's fine for lawyers to quit. But the the cause here, (laughs) the plaintiff here, is the president. And I'll say it again, I just can't imagine George H.W. Bush signing off on all of this. Uh, And if he hadn't signed off on all of this in 1992, then... The the nineteen ninety two version of Sydney Powell or Rudy Giuliani wouldn't have gone and said all that in public. So I know there are some people who will say, "Ah, well, that's because George H. W. Bush was a weakling. He was a cuck." Well, I don't th- I don't think that at all. Um, and uh, it remains the case that at some point whether he acknowledges it explicitly or not president trump is 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 going to concede either by saying i lost the election or by taking the steps to hand over the reins as he has it seems with the gsa to joe biden or by literally leaving the white house on the 20th of january so i'm not sure either way what fighting does for you when when you don't have a case so i i really do think this is this is a the president's fault, and I think it's similar to our previous conversation about conspiracy theories. I think when the guy at the top indulges them, then those around him realize that they don't pay a professional price for saying things that aren't true. Uh, and again, I I'm blaming the the uh, client, not his lawyers.
1: Yeah, so I I, I guess I could I just I agree with your general point about even child rapists should have lawyers. Point that's fine um and i agree with you what they tried to do with the jones day because they weren't even representing trump they were representing like the pennsylvania gop and there's nothing wrong with doing that um i guess where i kind of get off the boat here is that um the i agree that that it is useful to have fact finders and rules of evidence in a court of law to settle many of these disputes and i think it is, um, although I think it is amazing how so many, I get into the arguments with people about this all the time, um, including a lot of dispatch readers who seem to think that like they haven't brought their legal case yet. And yet Trump has actually brought, I don't know, 38 cases and he's lost 36 or 37 of them. Um, and, uh, that's all fine. But like, the The problem I have with your analogy is I think this is somewhat unique, right? We we need the legal system to protect ultimately the wrongly accused, and so we afford rights, um, and uh, and 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 special privileges to everybody accused, just so that the system is fair and all that kind of stuff. What the president of the United States is doing is starting from a conclusion that he was wronged when he was not, and then reverse engineering from that. And I don't know that lawyers, I mean, there's a wonderful video of an Arizona judge who I, I remember, I showed this to a few of my lawyer friends, and they were just gobsmacked by it, that basically what Trump's lawyers have been doing is they've been crowdsourcing their legal arguments. And they ask, basically the internet to send them affidavits. And then they send them affidavits. Most of them are BS. And this judge rips some Trump lawyers a new one because he says, look, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. You're telling me that the ones you could prove were false, you took out. But the ones that you couldn't prove are false or true, you've submitted to the court as if they are true affidavits. You know, we don't do things like this where we just take internet rumors and enter them in as evidence. Um, and there are a lot of those kinds of cases where these lawyers are, um, they're not going in with something that they've done the due diligence and said, okay, this looks fishy, and I want to, and it's our job to uh you know adjudicate this. They are grabbing. Basically, Breitbart comment section nonsense and throwing it at judges on the assumption that the judges will be the grown-ups. I don't think that that's particularly honorable lawyering. I don't think like you that you are preserving or helping the system by agreeing to take the president's case when you know for a fact that he's not that his intent here isn't to get to the truth. It is to provide pretext to essentially steal power, and I don't think that that. Fits some higher code for lawyers to do. I guess, I mean, that's just where I come down on it.
0: I think that is probably where we disagree. Where I think we don't disagree is this I think it's possible and imperative, in fact, to draw a distinction between what a lawyer says in a court setting and what a lawyer says outside of it or without. Uh, going to court. I've thought that the progressive impatience with the court process has been counterproductive, not just on my uh, pro-court grounds, but for their own cause. Because the fastest way, and you just highlighted an example of it, for nonsense claims to be met with a brick wall and dismissed is for them to be brought into a courtroom in front of a judge and subject to rules. Anyone who is bothered by this should want as much court action as possible. Uh, Now, this is where we disagree slightly, even if that involves a lawyer saying, on November 3rd, 2020, a full third of Trump voters were temporarily kidnapped by aliens. Where that gets murky is when the same people don't go into a courtroom, uh, but make these allegations in public, where they can't be rebutted. Uh, And in fact, sometimes on television stations, on which they will largely be indulged and spread. I have absolutely no problem lambasting Jenna Ellis and Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell for that. And and I think one can find a good analogy for it. Suppose that you were accused of sexual assault. You would want a court process, presumably, if you were innocent. What you would not want is for the person who had accused you to run around the country and say, I'm not bringing any of these allegations into a courtroom. I'm not submitting them to a judge or a jury. I'm not submitting them to any legal rules. I'm not cross-referencing them with the laws or even with moral standards. I'm just going to say them. I'm going to say them on all the TV stations that hate you. I'm going to say them on all the campuses that hate you to all the people who hate you and have them republished on all the websites that hate you. That would be absolutely disgraceful uh, because there would be at no point an adversarial um, uh, pushback uh, or any tram lines, frankly. Um, So insofar as the Rudy Giuliani's and and Jenna Ellis's of the world have gone down that route, which they have. It is simply not the case that all of the allegations that they have levelled have been made in court. Uh, Then they deserve our opprobrium. Insofar as they are making outlandish claims in court, I'd rather let the process work out and blame uh, the president because this is his argument. They are his representatives and he's responsible.
1: Yeah, okay. I have no problem blaming the president. Um, I just don't think that the lawyers who are perpetrating what is a, essentially a fraud on the public, um, where they allow themselves to be associated with a campaign that alleges massive, unprecedented criminal fraud, and then go to court with nickel and dime things where they won't even say the word fraud because the rules of evidence and the and court procedures say that if you alleged fraud, then all sorts of things kick in. They're part of a PR campaign to throw stink on the, like, like you, in your analogy, the, you would, you would think that Joe Biden is happy to have this being dragged out through the courts. And I don't think that he is. Because he's ultimately the one being accused of stealing an election.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that. What, what I'm saying is that given that Trump has raised these allegations and declined to acknowledge that he lost the election, which he did, those who wish this to be resolved and for the truth to be made clear should want as much court action as possible and as little press conference action as possible. Uh, because courts will render judgments that can then be pointed to, uh, judges will write opinions that can then be used. Um, whereas the uh, you know it, it, a, a a good example of the system not uh, throwing up that outcome is Stacey Abrams. I mean, Stacey Abrams did not take all of her allegations into court. Why? Because she lost by 50,000 votes and ultimately she knew it. And so she went around the TV stations and she got her Annie leibowitz photo in the New York Times and she talked in vague terms uh, and she refused to acknowledge that she had lost and she showed up at the Democratic Governors Association. And now and again, she would sprinkle in talk of Jim Crow and how far we have to come uh, that is not an argument that would have stood up in court. It's not a legal argument. It's not a, an argument based on facts. It's not an electoral argument. And uh, I think that the, the people of Georgia would have been better off if Stacey Abrams had taken her case to court uh, and been forced to present it in a concise and rigorous manner. Uh, or not, because there really wasn't one. And I think that every time that the Trump campaign goes into a court in the United States and says, well, the president must have won because he must have won, it does a great deal more good for faith in and understanding of the electoral process and the outcome of the election uh, than uh, when he gives a press conference or goes on Fox. And if you take away the, the court avenue, then you're only left with the press conference and the Fox appearance. And people say, you know, he never got a chance. He never got his day in court. He never got to press this. I mean, you've already said this. There are a lot of people out there who are waiting for some mythical shoe to drop. They're waiting for a kraken, which was a strange <laughs> choice of words given that krakens don't exist. We've seen it. I mean, all of the evidence for the existence of the kraken has already been presented even so, people don't know that. Um, So to foreclose the court option, it's a bit late in the day now, but earlier on, to foreclose the court option would have been counterproductive for those of us who want to make it clear that it is not a matter of opinion or taste, but a fact that Joe Biden narrowly won the 2020 presidential election.
1: Yeah. um, I just, I mean, I think you're making sort of my point also in that We've had all these court cases, and the people who believe this nonsense are utterly immune to the power of these courts to do this. And the the fact that Trump is pushing it through the courts lends it a, a patina of seriousness that it does not deserve. But again, I don't want to get too bogged down in this. We've gone a long way on this, Um, and besides, I mean, I I'm still very cross that they have not talked about releasing the Jormungander also known as the Midgard Serpent, <laughs> um, which is a much more important um, serpent as a fan of Norse mythology over... Uh, B- yeah. Norse mythology is real. Greek mythology is garbage. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, uh, and I'm sorry if I sound a little weird. It's just that I, 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 it's early in the morning for me and I haven't had my, my nicotine. And that's why I want to talk about Lucy. Okay, quitting cigarettes is important. I think that's, that's agreed upon um cigarettes are a terrible habit if you're going to smoke real tobacco you should smoke a pipe or a cigar if you don't want to smoke any of those things which for health reasons certainly makes some sense um and you've already started and you got that 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 jones for that sweet sweet nicotine Lucy is the product for you Lucy nicotine is a company founded by Caltech scientists and former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative finally tobacco alternatives that don't suck. Researched and developed for three years to be made for people, not patients, Lucy has created a nicotine gum with four milligrams, four sweet milligrams of nicotine that come in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. Lucy also has a lozenge with four milligrams of nicotine in cherry ice flavor each and every flavor actually tastes great i I warned people before i was a skeptic of the pomegranate but i finally tried it and i gotta say it's really not bad and it's convenient and discreet products these products can be enjoyed anywhere on flights at work on the go or even in the gym um i've for various reasons feel like i really need to cut down on my cigar smoking and um i don't think they're complicated reasons um but uh i found that the 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 Lucy gum has really helped me in that regard. It kind of gets me over that writer's block hump that I want to light up a cigar for. And that's particularly important in cold weather. You know, um, I'm not allowed to smoke cigars in my house. I I love my cigar shop, signature cigars on Wisconsin, but I feel like hanging out with a bunch of dudes smoking and coughing during a pandemic is not the greatest idea for me. Um, And, uh, and when it gets cold, it's difficult to find a place where you can smoke a cigar Outside because it's cold. And so the nicotine gum really is coming in handy. It's 2020. You can get rid of your cigarettes. You can unplug your vape, throw out your dip, and save your cigars for a special occasion by getting some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple, and you don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery down. Remnant listeners can go to lucy.co, not that's L-U-C-Y dot C-O, and use promo code DINGO to get 20% off all products, including gum or lozenges. That's lucy.co, promo code DINGO. Also, I have to give you the disclaimer, warning, this product Contains nicotine derived from tobacco, and nicotine is an addictive chemical. So go to lucy.co, that's L-U-C-Y dot C-O, and be sure to use that promo code DINGO. All right, so let's get you back to the reason why we are here, right? It's Thanksgiving is coming. Uh, we're recording this on a Tuesday. By, by By the time people listen to this, it may be, there will be, I don't know if they'll be driving to Thanksgiving or not um, because of the pandemic stuff. Um, uh, where do you rank Thanksgiving? As, just so people know, Charlie is sort of almost irrationally pro-American in a way that only sort of like the sort of the passion of the convert since he wasn't born here. Um and he's a great guy to have on. Sorry, I'm cracking open a beer. I'm just getting all misty-eyed about how wonderful America is. Um uh, so where, do, where does where does Thanksgiving fit in your pantheon? Because you're kind of a Fourth of July guy, right? And less, and you're you know you're an atheist. So like Thanksgiving, how does it fit into your uh,
0: your worldview of these things? It's very slightly below July Fourth, but it gets closer every year. It's a strange holiday for a Brit at first. For a number of reasons. Firstly, it feels a little like a Sats Christmas because Thanksgiving dinner is what traditionally British people eat at Christmas.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And in some senses, it's a bigger deal in America than Christmas. Whereas in Britain, Christmas is the big holiday. We clearly don't have July 4th or Thanksgiving. Uh, And we don't have um, the other traditions that are associated with it, like football. Mm -hmm. So as I've got more and more and more into football, I've liked Thanksgiving more and more with it. Whereas when I first came to America, I didn't really understand football at all. Uh, You can't quite beat July 4th, both because it is a celebration of the Declaration of Independence it's invariably sunny. Uh, I know I live in Florida, but that was more of a concern when I didn't. Thanksgiving's cold, not mm-hmm. here, but but where I was. July 4th w- was warm. And I just like being outside and eating hot dogs and burgers. Um, but yeah, Thanksgiving's climbing up the charts, Joan. Who knows, if we do one of these in 10 years, mm-hmm. maybe it will have overtaken July 4th. Um,
1: yeah, so it is... I like it better than the 4th of July, um, in part because while as I get older, the cold bothers me more, uh, July in Washington, DC is horrible. And, um, and while I like the fireworks, um, uh, Thanksgiving's right in my wheelhouse. I like it cause it's very hard to commercialize though. They've tried, um, the gift thing gets old. Um, Uh, you know, you still have little kids, but like, uh, the, 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 there's the, the incredible consumerism of, of Christmas starts to get on me. And the thing about Thanksgiving is it's simplicity is that it's, you know, it's just a big meal where you're supposed to be grateful for your friends and family and, and, and for another year on this planet and for this country. And, um, uh, and the other thing I like about, which I think we've talked about before, is I think Fourth of July and Thanksgiving are they're two sides of a weird coin in American civic culture. And that Fourth of July is literally the most sort of, I would argue, patriotic holiday, because it is about it's about a text. I mean it's about a friggin' piece of paper, you know? Um and and the consequences of that piece of paper and the 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 internal logic, the moral logic of that piece of paper. And Thanksgiving is older than America, um, and it's based on a covenant with God, and it's about gratitude for for really basic stuff like soil and food and 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 community and that kind of thing. And so, in that way, it's the best nationalistic holiday we got. In that, it's it's really it's it's it, in the in the way that the good Germans meant blood and soil. It's about blood and soil, really. It's about your blood, your family, and and this place, this little slice of earth and, and giving thanks to God. And so I, I think it's sort of a fascinating sort of yin and yang of American culture. Um, I'm
0: certainly happy we have both. Um, do the,
1: do the, I guess, is there anything in British culture that gets close to that idea? I mean, you guys had that, you've had that real estate for a really frigging long time. So it's not like, but the, the French have that whole chosen nation thing, and I don't know if it comes out in a particular holiday, but is, it, is there anything about that, that, that has that same Thanksgiving vibe in British culture?
0: No, I think all of those instincts have been taken over by the public's devotion to the National Health Service. <laughs> I'm, I'm only half joking. I'm only half joking. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's peculiar. We have nothing like it. We, we do have a, a holiday, although it's not a holiday. Nobody takes it off. Called Harvest Festival, which is along the same ideas, but sounds pretty really. Fluid-y. Yeah, well, it's it's a day when you gather up food and cans and send them to poorer people in Britain or abroad. Uh-huh. It's what we did at school. There's nothing else to it. Um. So is it is it like,
1: so it doesn't have great roots in some sort of pagan, you know, thing of... of-
0: I'm sure it does. I, to be honest with you, I don't think we were ever told about it. I think that's an assumption. Because <laughs> everything in Britain has been there for so long. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, that's, you know, that's that fence. It's just, it's just there. Who built uh-huh. it? Don't I. <laughs> what do we do with it? Every year we go and give it cans and <laughs> uh, vegetables. All right. All right, so I don't think I've talked to you about this
1: stuff before. Um, um, and we can come back to Thanksgiving in a bit, but um so you wrote a book called Conservatarianism, which was sort of a your own personal updating of this long-held fusionist kind of right. argument on the right, and um conservatarian manifesto, I should say. And um whether you call it fusionism or the conservatarian consensus or whatever. It appears more and more like it is either breaking down or a bunch of politicians and eggheads are betting that it's going to break down. Um, you know, you have Marco Rubio, who every day says something weirder or dumber, or, or at least surprisingly weird or dumb. Um, actually, I'll read you a text that I got right before we started this. He tweeted um, a couple hours ago. Biden's cabinet picks went to Ivy League schools, have strong resumes, attend all the right conferences, and we polite and orderly caretakers of America's decline. I support American greatness. I have no interest in returning to, quote unquote, the normal that left us dependent on China. Now, I'm sure we agree with certain aspects of that. But on the other hand, it's a kind of a weird thing to, to say. And his notion, you know, his his attacks on market fundamentalists and all that is problematic to me um same thing with the nonsense that i hear from holly and cotton um are you at all concerned about the the conservatarian consensus coming apart
0: that's a huge question because i got some predictions in the book right and some wrong what i got right uh, was that there would be... The lizard
1: people would help steal the election?
0: Ab- absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But has, the thing is, there's all of these various ideas that Trump has presented in court, and he won't hit on the true one. <laughs> no, what, what I got right look, looking back at it was that gay marriage per se would become less important, not just to younger people, but to conservatives, but that religious liberty would not fade with it. That happened quicker than I thought. The other aspect of the book that I got absolutely right, and at the time I thought I was getting right, but I had no idea how much, was that by the 2016 election, there would be a lot more Rand Paulism in Republican foreign policy attitudes. And that if anything, the party would start swinging back more toward a Senator Taft view of the world uh, than of a uh, Woodrow Wilson view of the world. And that's happened, um, for, for good or for ill. Where I was wrong, or at least where I may have been wrong, is... That I assumed that the more free market, free trade assumptions that have undergirded the Republican Party for a long time would continue to do so. Now, I will add a caveat on that, not because I don't want to be wrong, I'm fine with being wrong, but because Trump is a mixed bag here in that he and those who have gone along with him, Senator Hawley especially, to some extent, Senator Rubio, although he's Of a chameleon. He has gone after some elements of traditional fiscal conservatism, especially on trade. Uh, He doesn't talk about markets in the same way as previous presidents have. There is an animosity that is led and indulged by Trump and those around him towards, say, the Koch brothers or the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, and there is the growth of organizations such as Oren Cass's American Compass, which exists to challenge what they see as free market orthodoxy uh, and also some mythical libertarian dominance of the United States. But we're c- coming to that later. Uh, so the, the, the tendency that you're hinting at is, of course, real. And it's one that I didn't see coming. But I'm not yet sure that it has actually crept in to the Republican mainstream, in that President Trump seemed happy outside of trade to go along with most of the usual Republican positions on economic matters. And the one thing that he got through Congress that will change the next decade was a tax cut bill that was largely written and imagined by Paul Ryan. Uh, Had he succeeded, he certainly tried. He would have overseen the partial repeal of Obamacare and opening up of that bill to more market forces. And the very presence of Joe Biden in the White House is likely to spur, hypocritically I accept, uh, some of the old numbers back into existence. Worry about the debt, worry about budget deficits. Stephen Moore is already at, on it.
1: Stephen Moore is yeah. talking about how Biden's going to be too much of a big spender.
0: Right, so... you yeah, know, and, and then what, one could say, yeah, but but look at look at where Trump really changed things. He quite explicitly rejected the idea of entitlement reform in a way that Republican presidents haven't. But he doesn't differ from previous Republican presidents in that he didn't actually get it done. And he spent or worked in tandem with Congress to spend an enormous amount, which is also what the last Republican president did. So, yeah, I think there is a real shift in rhetoric and attitude. And I think if Republicans gain enough power, then we may see it come to fruition. I'm not sure it has yet. And so I'm not quite sure how to evaluate where the conservative movement actually is, given that Donald Trump has been regnant within it, really the only focal point within it for four years, and still the old guard got most of their way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, to be blunt about it, the stuff that people call zombie Reaganism is the bulk of Trump's positive legacy. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, from federal society judges to tax cuts um, to deregulation stuff, that's all, you know, I mean, that's my stuff, you know. Um, you I'm know, General,
0: I, I'm pro-zombie Reaganism for what it's worth. And I think one of the best ways to look at whether zombie Reaganism is as unpopular, as its critics suggest that it is, is to look at control of Congress where you don't have a President Trump running for the last 30 years. And frankly, generic zombie Reagan Republican does pretty well. Right. Republicans have run Congress for most of the last three decades, and having been zombie Reaganites over and over again, they've been elected and re-elected. So, and I, I'm not a big fan of the. I know you're not either. I'm not a big fan of this zombie Reagan term. Um, it it only really works if if the only branch you think matters or is indicative of public sentiment is the executive branch within the federal government, which I absolutely don't. Um, but I,
1: I mean, I, I've talked about this a lot on this podcast. so I don't want to get in the weeds on it, but I think that the um, the reason why we're hearing so much of it now is there is be- there has been a, I would argue, a major miscalculation by Rubio, Cotton, Holly, um, and those guys that they think the way to win over the new Trump voters that Trump brought into the party who are basically the core of the old new deal coalition types, plus more working class Hispanics and blacks is on policy grounds. And this gets the causation backwards because these guys joined the party, uh, when the policies weren't this pro worker was multi-ethnic workers party stuff. And, um, and also gets the motivation wrong because, They didn't join for that stuff. They joined for other reasons about Trump. I mean, maybe it was the, either it was just simply the good economy or because they believed the the stuff about Biden being a socialist, um, or they liked his personality and his populism stuff, but it wasn't explicitly because of his New Deal-style pro-worker policies. And the idea that, like, Cotton and Pence and Rubio uh, and Hawley and these guys could hold on to those voters, the sort of the, the the passionate Trump voters, purely with a policy play, I just think is a, a misreading of the political reality and is going to lead them into a huge mess down the
0: road. It's also a misreading of Trump in that, and I read a piece the other day, had this snarky line in there, which I'm sure you've heard in other contexts, that, There is nothing Republicans don't think they can fix with a tax cut. This was a piece written by a guy on the right who was criticizing the GOP's over reliance on tax cuts as a policy staple. Now, in a vacuum, I don't have a particular objection to that, in that often Republicans forget. or or proceed as if they have forgotten that they have been enormously successful at cutting taxes at the federal level and at the state level for years. If you were to survey the landscape now compared to in 1980, you would simply not conclude that the problem we have is that taxes are too high. Mm -hmm. If you have a moral problem with taxes, which in some senses I do, you might come to different conclusions. But if you were asked, what is the big problem in the United States from a conservative perspective, you would say spending. And and specifically, you would say entitlements. Anyhow, but this wasn't the point that was being made in this piece. The point that was being made in this piece was, and that's why we needed Trump to come along and shake us up. (laughs) But Trump also at every juncture during his presidency, whatever happened, (laughs) proposed a tax cut. And there were two things that Trump did reflexively. He proposed a tax cut and he proposed tariffs. Tariffs is new. Tax cuts is not. Mm -hmm. With coronavirus, oh, we need a tax cut. (laughs) Oh, we need a tax holiday. We need tax deferrals. He kept saying, For years, just before the midterms, after the tax bill had gone through, just before this election, if you re-elect me or if you elect more Republicans, we'll do another tax cut, a deeper tax cut, a payroll tax cut, a tax cut for people who earn less, a middle class tax cut, a homeowner's tax cut. I'm open to the idea that Republicans rely too much on this and that they've done most of that work. But the idea that President Trump was a corrective to it and we need to follow him in his rejection of this mantra, it's just wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: So, I mean, like, your basic position is wait
0: and see. My basic position is wait and see. I think that the biggest area in which I was wrong was, as I say, the assumption that we would not see this sort of rhetoric from the Rubios and Cottons of the world. And although it wasn't written explicitly, the assumption that the well-educated middle class would continue to be attached at the expense of most other things to a free market outlook. I think that question is up in the air. It it does seem possible that suburban voters will, for the foreseeable future, be just as interested in other questions than in the economy. Um, And maybe, maybe poorer voters will be more interested in economic questions than other questions for the first time in a while to offset it. Who knows? Uh, but the the idea that it's the economy stupid is all we have to think about does seem to have gone out of the window. And I don't know whether that's because Trump was so outrageous that people felt that they couldn't just tick the Republican box as usual, or whether that uh, foreshadows a, a shift in voter behavior. It's not my area. But my assumption in the book was that that would continue off into the distance forever, and I'm not convinced it will.
1: Yeah, no, you, you might be right. I mean, the it seems I think the middle, the, the sort of suburbanite vote, particularly the female suburbanite vote, which' is really interesting as the data clarifies, was much more important than the black vote in places like Georgia and, and, and Florida uh, or less Florida, but certainly Georgia is you know that's where they turned. The people who turned out to vote for Biden weren't African Americans in Michigan, Wisconsin or, or, or Georgia. It was it was white chicks and. Um, And it'll be interesting to see if the sort of chicken in every pot kind of approach to politics appeals less to the lower class and more in some ways to the middle class. Um, And the thing is, is if you want a chicken in every pot, you want a lot of other meat products too. And that's why I want to talk about United Harvest. Not a lot of you know that I haven't talked about this very much, but one of my favorite movies um, from when I was a kid or at least a teenager was the movie, The Wanderers. And one of the best characters in there was Anthony Meat Tuparello. And so we can talk about the Wanderers another time. Instead, let's talk about meat. Um, Did you know that the best stuff isn't available at the grocery store? But if you order meat online, you should know that some of those quote-unquote boxes import their meat from overseas. Well, I've been getting my meat, at least recently, from United Harvest which is a new delivery com- company founded by Ranchers with a capital R. They exclusively provide the best cuts of American beef, Wagyu, and lamb. I know exactly what I'm getting and exactly where it's from, and you can really taste the difference. United Harvest works directly with North American family farms that uphold the highest standards of quality and animal care. Instead of an industrial factory, all of United Harvest meat is processed in Oregon by an expert butcher. The end result is superior to what you get from the big supply chains, and sold directly to you at a surprisingly good price. We're talking about premium cuts, ribeye steak, which is well-marbled and mouthwatering; New York strip, which is potato-fed, not corn-fed, resulting in a richer and fuller flavor. Wagyu top sirloin steak, which is a versatile cut that's lean and flavorful lamb loin chops that are perfect for a holiday party. They are tender, packed with flavor, and quick to cook. The flavor is out of this world because premium quality is built into every step of United Harvest's sustainable farming process, which includes no hormones, no GMOs, or unnecessary antibiotics. Since United Harvest's farmers are right here in the USA, there's no imported meat from halfway around the world, like some other meat delivery companies do. Just premium cuts of perfect, glorious meat delivered overnight. I've been dipping in and out of our. We got a big shipment to United Harvest to try out for this. This and you know it's funny. I get this glowing testimonial um, on a recent podcast, and uh, got all this feedback from people about how my epic five minute rant about United Harvest, United Harvest, and meat um, uh, was, was so impactful for their lives. And then I just found out while I was relaying this to our producer, Caleb, um, that I got a lot of feedback from it. And he told me that he actually cut down my, my diatribe about United Harvest and meat because it went on too long. So what you heard wasn't the director's cut. It was the edited down version of my ode to United Harvest and the glories of meat. Just wanted you people to know that. So here's what you can do. Here's what else I want you to do. Go to unitedharvest.com. That's unitedharvest.com and enter the promo code DINGO to get 20% off site-wide with your order of $50 or more. That's unitedharvest.com and use promo code DINGO at checkout. If you value quality, flavor, and convenience, check out United harvest.com and be sure to use promo code DINGO to save 20% off your order of $50 or more. We thank United Harvest for their sweet, sweet meat and for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. All right, so um, let's get back. I mean, you know, it's, it's rare we have so, such an opportunity for um, euphony um then when charlie cook is on who have the uh among the most popular accents that have ever been on on here um and i'm tempted just to have you read the jacksonville phone book for us for a little while but uh um in terms of gratitude right this is one of my big things is you know america that that conservatives need to spend a little i think one of the reasons why you have this unleashing of really vitriolic and poisonous conspiracy theory stuff and um uh, um and just bilious politics on the left and the right i mean this is a both sidesism thing people are just nasty jackasses um in our american politics is is precisely the kind of thing when you lose sight of that you should be grateful to be in america right and lose sight of the fact that um that you're not entitled to, you're entitled to your rights, you know, you're entitled to your freedom, but you're not entitled to anything else and that everything else is an argument and 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 um, you got to make your own way. Um, do you think, given that it's Thanksgiving, do you think that that Americans should be more grateful for what they have?
0: Absolutely. I don't think... Many Americans know what they have either because they've never been anywhere else, at least outside of a vacation. Everywhere looks good on vacation, or because they don't understand how exceptional and different this country is. I'm going to give you my my theory by Ann Elk, Jonah on on America and and on why I'm a conservative. You mentioned the conservatarian book. One of the problems we have in America is that conservative often doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. And people have written books and essays about this forever. I won't relitigate them more, But the, the basic argument I subscribe to is that America is a classically liberal nation and that one should be conservative of that. And if one is conservative of that, one is a conservative but ultimately a conservative uh, of small-l liberalism. Now, one of the reasons to be conservative of that order, in my view, is that I think we will only get one shot at it. Ever. The founding was not perfect, clearly. And worse than the founding not being perfect, the founding was often ignored. I don't believe that the founding was evil. I don't believe that the prime values of the founding were slavery and racism. I think that the founding didn't manage to formally exclude those things because compromise was necessary. And informally, those things survived for a long, long time and to some extent still do. But the structure and the overarching principles of the United States are glorious and they're worth defending. My reading, and this is in part informed by being British, of Western history, is that you really get one shot to set classically liberal values in aspic and from that point on it's either improving how you live up to them which we've done with the reconstruction amendments after the civil war with civil rights and so on Uh, or you fight against those who would demolish them and weaken them i think the bigger threat before america now is from those who would demolish them or weaken them. There are still problems in America, but I think we've done most of the work, at least formally, in setting into place institutions that can help everyone uh, access the, the promise of the United States. The big threat is from those who just don't like the classically liberal order and are open about it. Mm-hmm. Now, In most cases, those people are not evil. They're not trying to take over the world. Ha ha ha. They're not trying to enslave anyone. They believe uh, that if they get rid of what they consider to be useless obstacles or an outdated framework, we will enter sunlit uplands. I don't. And... As such, I think that it is extremely important to hold on at all costs to those founding values as amended and refined uh, and to avoid the, the fool's gold of reform. And I think America has done a pretty good job at that. I'm more worried at the moment than I have been for a while because... Opposition to the American ideal seems to be something of a fever pitch in the press, in academia, in Hollywood. I'm not sure it is in general in the United States. We'll see. But I think that overall, we've done a pretty good job. We still have the vast majority of the provisions that were set in Aspic at the beginning. People may not know as much about their history as they should, but I think they still broadly believe it to be a good history and the country to be a good place. I don't think that those trolly missives you see on July 4th from the likes of Colin Kaepernick resonate with the average person in the United States. Not because he's too busy or because he's been brainwashed, or because he's living in a false consciousness, but because he actively disbelieves them. And I think that this is something for which we should be enormously thankful, insofar as it is possible to write down uh, a classically liberal order in which people are to be treated as equals and largely left alone, the United States has done better than every nation in the world and every nation that has ever existed. And I have many things to be thankful for besides politics, and uh, an overly focused approach to politics leads you to forget why we have politics in the first place. But I am thankful for that uh, this Thanksgiving. And and every day uh, I was thankful for that As a child watching America from afar, before I had any politics, and if I had any, they leaned leftwards, I was thankful for that when I moved here nine years ago. I was thankful for that when I became a permanent resident and at my citizenship ceremony two years ago. And today, because I don't see any parallel in the world, and what that means is that I have been lucky enough not only to live at this point in history, but live in the place that is the best uh, at providing a framework for me to, to flourish of all of the countries in the world. And if you can't be grateful for that, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, I mean, that's
1: one of the reasons why you should be grateful to be living in the United States of America is that politics isn't central to our lives. And shouldn't you know that's you know the part of the whole idea is that that and part of the, the conservatarian point of view to be sure is that politics only speaks to a small slice of your life and right. the people who i mean people who don't appreciate america one of the things they don't appreciate is that in some countries caring about politics is a matter of survival <laughs> you know we're here it's a matter of for a lot of people, it's just a hobby, you know, let's be blunt about it. And that's fine. You know, it's a good hobby. It's they're better hobbies, I think. But there's a line in the screw tape letters where um Satan is explaining how the first thing you got to do is make people obsessed about politics and only care about politics. And I think that, you know, that's one of the things that bothers me about the last five years is all of the Flight 93 stuff, the catastrophizing of politics, the idea that we're just one election away from doom. Um, makes our system seem so much more fragile than it actually is. We can survive Joe Biden. We could have survived an Elizabeth Warren presidency. I mean, like this country is sturdier than all of that. But if you get it in your head that that we are on the precipice of falling into oblivion, then you give yourself permission to to use tactics and language and think of your country as this fragile thing. And that, that leads to its own kind of poisonous kind of politics. Um, there's a paradox here though.
0: There's a paradox. Much as if you want peace, you often have to fight. If you want a politics that allows most people to be disinterested in politics, I should say, uninterested in politics, you have to to some extent pay attention to it. Well I agree. You and know I mean? Where where I think you and I differ from either the Flight 93 Brigade or the Everything Is Political Brigade on the left is that that engagement with politics is primarily defensive. We'd rather be doing something else. Mm-hmm sometimes you have to stand up and say, no, you you can't censor speech because then we can't speak. Right. What worries me about the politics is everything brigade, which is broadly described as progressivism, and the Flight 93 brigade, which is broadly described as Trumpism, is that they have an unfortunate tendency to uh, route, you would say, route everything through the government. Now, I don't mean by that that they want everything to be run by the government, necessarily. But I can't tell you how many times I've been told by progressive friends over the last four years that they just can't be happy while Donald Trump is president. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the birth of their child was less of an event for them. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating because Donald Trump is president. That in some sense, uh, the value of not just the federal government or even the image of the United States on the world stage, but the value of America right down to their dinner is hooked on who the president is and how he behaves. And the flip side of that, Is that the same people? They seemed to like every single thing in their lives more when Barack Obama was in the White House. (laughs) And now I should say, I've seen some of this behavior from really pro Trump people as well. Mm That for the first time in their life, you know, they went to work feeling good because Donald (laughs) Trump was president. Now I have strong political views and my the extent to which I worry about the world and and the future and uh, my liberty varies depending on who is in office. Of course it does. For example, I worried a lot less about gun control while Donald Trump was president sure. than I probably will for the next four years. But outside of those defensive actions and outside of explicitly political thoughts... I cannot really draw much of a distinction between my life as I live it day-to-day under Obama yeah. and my life as I live it day-to-day under Trump. Chocolate tastes the same. <laughs> my, my conception of America tastes the same. My political views at their core level have remained the same. And that's another element of this that I think is fascinating. It's the number of people who have said, well, if the president... Is awful. I must change all of my views on yeah. charter schools or whatever, and I find that alien. Frankly, I, I I don't know where to engage with people who think like that. I agree.
1: I mean, Max Boot and Jen Rubin. I I I don't get the psychological. I mean, at least Max Boot has admitted it, so I understand his explanation for his psychological process. But I just saw this morning he tweeted that um, Joe Biden's team is the is America's A team. His new cabinet I was like you wouldn't have said that four years ago. I mean, it, it, it's a perfectly fine serviceable group of Democrats, but like, like why suck up to them? Why glorify them? Why, why, if it, it just, it's strange to me. And like, and the Jen Rubin stuff is, is utterly baffling to me. Like why, because Trump says two plus two is four, then all of a sudden I must say it's seven, you know, it's just weird. Um, but this gets, you know, so I've been using this analogy for a while. I don't think I've tried it out on you. Um, in the you know in the in the years leading up to the glorious revolution there was this bedrock or i shouldn't say bedrock this this sort of yawning chasm between catholics and protestants in england i think you've heard about it and um (laughs) (laughs) and um the whole idea of a catholic on the throne um let's just stipulate for the sake of the analogy that there wasn't an enormous amount of practical things that would change in people's lives, you know, if you were a farmer or whatever, but it upset your entire conception of who you were and who your country, and what your country was, the idea of having a Catholic on the throne, or a Protestant on the throne, vice versa. What, you know, it depends on whether you were Catholic or Protestant. And this is something, you know, Ramesh has been writing about this for 20 years, about how we've turned the presidency into the, the top totem in the culture wars and that somehow claiming it for our team is important beyond policy reasons. It, it speaks to something in people's souls about what kind of nation we are. And um, it, it, one of the things that I, I think we probably agree on is I want politics to be fairly normal, where people are arguing about competing interests, and they can get heated, and they can get symbolic and all that kind of stuff. But I keep going back to uh, Randolph Bourne's essay about um, the state and where he, or I should say his writings because it's sort of an unfinished manuscript, where he makes this distinction that's very similar to one that Ben Sasse made in his Kavanaugh opening statement that you know, Congress is supposed to be a place where politics happens. That was Sasse's argument and that when Congress isn't dealing with politics, politics leaches out into the rest of the society. Bourne's point was that there are two um kinds there's the state and there's government and the government is full of hacks and strivers and ward healers and people pleasers and well-intentioned government you know public servants and they argue about people's different interests and what the best policy should be and it's it's worthy of mockery and all of these things and it's where politics happens the state is what you get during a time of war or crisis, where all of a sudden the government becomes this living expression, this institutionalized expression of the Volksgemeinschaft or whatever, the soul of America, and therefore, and therefore, any criticism of it is evil. And right. that, to me, is an important distinction for conservatives to understand: is the difference between that kind of statism versus governmentism. I'm all in favor of all sorts of knockdown, dragout fights about what the government should do, but. I don't want to live in a country where the state is sort of like, if it's not a Catholic on the front throne, you know, then it's a crisis kind of thing. We have to. And, and I think that those distinctions explain, help illuminate why our politics have gotten so ugly is that both sides want a state that speaks, speaks to their innermost aspirations about what it means to be a human being or an American. And you and I come from a school of thought that says, that's the last thing. The frickin' government, let alone the federal government, can ever do for us.
0: Well, and, and in part, because as we've discussed on previous episodes of this podcast, we would quite like the president to be the chief executive of the executive branch, and not much else. Right. Now, when the government has to become the state, invasion of Pearl Harbor, okay. But as a rule, I want to see the president as a bureaucrat. Right. I'm not particularly worried about who is in charge of fisheries in North Florida. I accept that you're going to have some human instinct toward reification. It's probably built into mm-hmm. us. And I accept that there are times when the president will become more than just a Coolidge-style functionary. Uh, if there's a war, a particularly bad hurricane, or a depression. Or, hey, a pandemic, maybe. Yeah, but but, <laughs> but isn't, isn't the point that we don't want the government always to be at war?
1: Right. No, absolutely right.
0: And And the problem with the way too many people saw President Trump, and the problem with the way too many people saw Barack Obama, was that they really did consider them the leaders in a war. Mm -hmm. And if one good thing is going to come from the election of Joe Biden, it might be that, although there will be people who pretend otherwise, not too many people (laughs) are instinctively going to view him in that way. Yeah, Uh, I don't want to be too positive because I'm sure within three days he'll take some executive action that will drive me up the wall. uh, And I'll be going on and on again about how Congress is dead and how ironic it is that a career legislator is usurping its prerogatives and so on. But it does seem to me that there is at least the possibility that a President Biden with a Republican Senate, if that happens, and a very close house, could take some of the drama. And by that, I I don't mean the arguments, but the drama out of politics, where it's not the light worker against the obstructionists or the wannabe Hitler against the resistance. It's that Joe Biden guy against that Mitch McConnell guy. (laughs) It's that Nancy Pelosi woman. (laughs) I can see some upside to that if if indeed it happens.
1: Yeah, no, it kind of reminds me, in cable news, there's a reason why they cover plane crashes and fires and like that, or, or... bouts of bow stewing disease on cruise ships is that (laughs) in normal times, the number of people who watch daily cable television, at least prior to Trump, was really small. And it was basically catered towards people like me who wanted to follow the insidery stuff of American politics. Whenever there's some sort of natural disaster, the number of people who flood into watch daytime cable news skyrockets tenfold. And so for, for news junkies, it's like, all right, you know, we know about the plane crash already enough, you know, let's get back to like what's going on in Congress. And, but for, for CNN, this is their, their whole setup is to monetize those moments when people who don't normally follow the news rush to watch the news and sort of like a broken down bus full of Japanese tourists outside of a diner. It's just this huge windfall, right? And um, the the kind of politics I want to get back to is where, you know, cable news for the last four years has been a constant state of crisis coverage of the Trump presidency, either defending Trump or attacking Trump. And I just don't want the president of the United States, like, in my life that much. And I want to have, like, news coverage. Like, you know, oh, my gosh, can you believe it? They didn't get cloture on that bill. (laughs) Um, And,
0: you know, Jonah, when I was made editor of the website in 2015, An
1: august position where only the greatest (laughs) (laughs) journalists in American history have ever
0: held? My parents came over for Christmas and I took them out for dinner. And my dad was asking me what I thought it would be like. And looking back, it makes me want to cry the answer (laughs) I gave. Because I said to him, Well, I think there's a chance that Republicans will win the next election. It's been eight years. They've taken back the House, now they've taken back the Senate. Hillary Clinton will likely be the nominee, and I don't know how strong she is. And it'll be really interesting for the first time to be covering a Republican Party that has the chance to to do things. Um, you know, because since 2008, it had been in uh, a position of weakness uh at least insofar as uh, getting anything new done and he said so w- w- what do you mean and i said well i mean it, it'll be interesting some days to go into work and look at which bills are working their way through <laughs> the legislature and who's well, fighting hurry. over what yeah um <laughs> And, and to see which direction they go in and which of the ideas that have been percolating since 2008 bubble up and which states' uh, models are followed and, and so on. And, you know, then Donald Trump won the primary. And ever since, every single day has gone a little bit like this. Me, 6.30 a.m., oh, I wonder what we should talk about. Oh, Trump's tweeted that. <laughs> Every day. Every <laughs> single day. Um, that's not great. Yes. It's just not a great way to run a country. Um, but that's over. So that's good. And
1: um, At least there'll be new arguments to be had, which is also a welcome thing for people who argue for a living like you and I do. Um, I've kept you very long. I apologize for that. It's always great to have you on. Um, but uh, I think we should get going and uh, have a wonderful Thanksgiving to you and your entire you. family. Is anyone coming in from out of town or is it just going to be the nuclear crew?
0: No, we're actually just, we're going down a few hours to spend some time with the family. And uh, yeah, we did it last year, so it's their turn.
1: We um, I'm going up to New York, New Jersey area. I'm getting a COVID test today because... My mom is definitely part of the vulnerable population, so we're gonna get a rapid test for at, at great expense, um, but it's worth it. And uh, anyway, uh, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it, and hope to have you back for the fifth time so you can get the gold jacket. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Okay, so Charlie has left the conversation, not the studio, because we don't use studios anymore in the pandemic. Um, always great to talk to Charlie. Um, always great to, um, uh, see where he comes down on all of this stuff. And really, it's just great to hear him talk his weird British dialect, you know, patois as it were. Um, just so you guys know, uh, the dispatch is pretty much going dark, um, on podcasts this week. And we're going to have a lighter load of, of, of print stuff or written stuff as well. Um, just because it's Thanksgiving, and it's been it's been quite a ride this year, and uh, we need a little time off, but uh, keep coming to check out what we do have, and um, it's one of the reasons why I let this podcast run a little long, so that people would have something to chew on, and uh, you know, you can always go back through the archives, a lot of Remnant podcasts are not tied to the news, and so you can go and hear all sorts of interesting conversations about all sorts of interesting things, um, you know, like the... The, the shelf life of the conversation about dog genetics, I think is pretty long and you might wanna check that one out. Anyway, I hope everybody has a truly wonderful Thanksgiving where politics intrudes as little as possible and where it does intrude, it's a source of, of entertainment and conversation and not screaming and yelling. And um, I gotta say one of the things we are most thankful for here at the Remnant and here at the Dispatch is our listeners and our readers and our subscribers and our members um, and all the people who have helped us um, come as far as we had in such a short period of time. Uh, We're truly grateful, we're truly flattered by it. We're also grateful to the people who um, aren't out in front of a lot of this enterprise that put everything together, including uh, Caleb, our, our podcast impresario, and I guess I have to praise Nick Pumpella, my assistant, Um, as much as it pains me to do so. Um, Thanks to them for all the hard work that they do. And thanks to everybody else at at the dispatch for the incredibly hard work that they do, except for Steve, for obvious reasons. So happy Thanksgiving, and I'll see you next time.
0: No, you won't. This is a podcast.